Montal here, and thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montal, where we talk about everything and anything cannabis and hemp related to see if we can give you enough information as you navigate the space to find products for yourself and for your family. I want you to be educated enough to go in and know what questions to ask. And I'm not putting down the industry, but right now, I think it behooves us with that old thing, patient, treat yourself. What behooves you to have the knowledge you need to be able to treat yourself. And if that's what you're attempting to do, I want to make sure I give it to you. And today I'm so excited. I'm in Southern California, folks. In California. And let me just tell you something. I got up this morning. It's cold. I thought I was in California. It's 50 degrees out here. This is really crazy. I got on a hoodie in, in, indoors. I'm still kind of uh, just just racked from last night sleeping and thinking to myself, am I in California? Am I in like, you know, New York or New Jersey? But I'm in California and on location here. And I'm so pleased and happy to have the guests that I have on today that I, I, I don't know beside myself because I'm trying to make sure I, I, I have enough time in an hour to get out half of what I want to talk about. It's only going to be half, I'm sure. But she's an actress, she's a writer, she's a former lifestyle, entertainment, and culture editor at High Times Magazine. You heard me, High Times Magazine. She's the most, uh, she's the host of the Weed and Grub podcast with comedian Mr. Mike Glazer. And I know a lot of you know him. And has was named as one of the 15 most powerful women in weed in the entire weed industry by Complex Magazine. I'm talking about the one and only Mary Jane Gibson. <laughs> Thanks so much, for Mary Jane, for being with me today. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. I'm excited because I think, you know, one of the things I like to do in this podcast is, is, is help people understand the journey they're on by going through someone else's journey. And you've been on quite the journey in a lifetime. Let's, let's go way back so we can make sure people understand where the cachet comes from. Okay. But when did you, when were you first introduced with, with cannabis? My first encounter with cannabis was growing up in Newfoundland in oh, Canada. Okay. Uh, so in the 80s, what was available in Newfoundland was hash. Mm-hmm. Uh, the import was only hash. I never saw flour. And probably most people don't understand what is hash. Hash is packed keef. That's really what it is. If you take that, boil it down and it started, you know, the hash has been trafficked and traveled around the world for thousands of years. But if you go back to about the last 600 years, hash was, you know, came out of the Golden Triangle, majority of it, and that, that uh, circumnavigated the globe. And those of you who remember the days you were younger, now I'm not trying to give away my age, but again, I remember being younger and, and, and smoking a little hash myself and remembering how sweet it tasted and couldn't understand why. What most people don't understand is that the easiest way to pack that pollen type of material was to literally pack it with, um, they were using not honey, but they were using molasses. Wow. And so molasses, they could pack it, pack it, pack it. Number one, it would keep it from rotting. Number two, it would keep it dry. If you put it in, remember, we're talking about sail days, folks, back when ships, you know, had <laughs> they were leaking all the time. <laughs> right. So they would pack bundles of this, pack it really, really, really hard. And of course, the molasses would help to hold the keef together, or hold the the pollen together. And then, when you got to the location, you want to chop it up and ready to go, you know, leave it out to dry just a little bit. That molasses loses most of its moisture, and then you were smoking something with this sweet flavor, thinking that that's really the taste of what I'm smoking. It's not. It was molasses. That's so. I didn't know that about the molasses. Oh, a lot of people don't know. You know, if you go back way, way back, there's some very interesting stuff about hash. Also, it's like the way it used to be made. I, I read a. This is well, 15 years ago. I read a. Uh, uh, I had literally had just come back 
from Holland. And I was in, uh, it was in Amsterdam. I was going to the Mecca back then. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I remember reading this brochure that showed how back in the 1800s and, you know, latter part of 1800s, they used to make hash and they would literally put, put young kids in these silk robes and they would run through the field to catch the pollen to on catch their clothing. The pollen on their clothing. How beautiful. Then they would step inside of a silk kind of a bubble that was made take their clothing off and then beat it and beat it. It sounds like it. a fairy tale. That's right. And then they'd also, when they did a harvest, they would come through with the marijuana, take it inside of that little bubble and shake it and shake it and shake it, catching it again on those, on that silk. So then after they caught enough, they would scrape that silk into a big bucket, add a little bit of molasses to it and pack it and pack it and pack it and pack it to keep from rotting. Wow. It's amazing. It's wild, huh? It is we've wild. Come, we've come a long, long, long way. We have <laughs> come a long way. That was also probably child labor, I guess, but it does sound Absolutely. like something something out of like 1001 nights. Yeah, but you know, it's a, you, you got to think about the fact that again, now we're talking about something that was happening 5 and 6 and 700 years ago. Yeah. That's how long the world has recognized the efficaciousness of this plant as an agent, whether it be a medicinal agent or a lifestyle agent. We created it to ship it worldwide. Absolutely. And that's how it was coming to Newfoundland. Right. I mean, I don't know if it was that kind of mm -hmm. uh, exactly the molasses packed hash. I know ice water hash was also something sure. that came mm -hmm. up in the 70s and 80s through the Amsterdam Yes, scene. absolutely. When we got way beyond having to, to worry about, you know, uh, uh, clean rooms and being able to pack it in a way that it wouldn't mold. We stopped using the molasses, so I should back up and say that. But I mean, some of the, you could you could still get some molasses flavored kinds of hashes in the you know latter sixties, early seventies. Well, I remember seeing all the different kinds of hash, yes. and the stuff that we mostly got was that like really black tar, and we mm -hmm. broke it open. It was really hard. King Hussein. Then, yeah, <laughs> that's a trip down memory lane in Amsterdam. But yeah, yes. Yeah, and and then when you got the really good stuff, you would break it open, and it was like golden pollen inside. Absolutely, it was like breaking into a Snickers bar. Absolutely, you yeah. Could barely, you know, rub, rub a little match across the outside of it, fluff it up a little bit, scrape it off. Yeah, yeah. Back in the day, right? And I miss hash. You don't get that now, especially with the rise of cannabis concentrates. Correct. You don't see hash so much, especially in dispensaries. Yeah, People nobody's really processing it in that way, and yeah, yeah I'm 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 disappointed in that because I mean for for me, I should say, for the last 20 years, I am a predominant non-flower smoker. I'm a keef smoker. Right. I have been. So I literally have stayed on the hash tip for 20 years. Yeah. Uh, you, you have institutional knowledge I, I about go, what hash looks like. Go back 20 years ago. I mean, I, I remember I used to go up in the, the Northern California and be in the Bay Area. And, you know, I would ask people, I, back in 2003, I was looking for high CBD strains back then. And in hash form, and in hash form, you could get the because people, you know, uh, keefing their material, right? Were literally dropping all that pollen into the bottom of baskets, saying, oh, "I don't want this." Wow, you don't want this? I'll buy it. What? <laughs> I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I've stayed on that tip now for close to twenty years. Wow. Go, let's go back. I'm sorry, I keep running my mouth, but go ahead. So tell me. So this is in Newfoundland. Yeah. Okay. And I was introduced to it by some friends who, uh, you know, they would do hot knives. Mm -hmm. Or they would crumble it up and roll it into tobacco and make a spliff. Sure. And that's how we smoked it. And so wow. that was it, you know, listening to music with my friends and mm -hmm. running around during snowstorms. There you go. It was a very beautiful sort of cinematic time back, in my back life. Back in the day where you could still do hash on the glass? Sure. You to, yeah, there you go. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the main part of that time for me was like experiencing all the music that was coming out mm -hmm. in the early 90s. I got into, you know, Nirvana at that time and uh, the Pixies. And sure. I just remember it as a really formative time for music and art in my head along with the experience of being a cannabis consumer for the first time. But at that point in time, you were just, 
doing it, I should say, and I use the term loosely when I say recreationally, but you were doing it just with friends, just to chill out. Absolutely. And had no thought in your mind about eventually becoming a part of this industry. Absolutely not. Right. I knew, I mean, my name was Mary Jane. And mm-hmm. so that was kind of a joke amongst my friends. But, you know, at home, my parents were very against cannabis in all forms. And so it was absolutely considered a drug. And As the rest of the world was, right? For sure. For and growing up, you know, in the 80s and 90s, it was like the D.A.R.E. programs were in school and all that sort right. of stuff. So it wasn't an option to be in it as an industry at all for me at that time. Right. Yeah. So then, okay, so that was the first introduction to Newfoundland. And then you later on got to travel to the Mecca, to Amsterdam. I did. Right? And uh, yeah. talk about that for a minute. How was it, years later? Or? Years later, the first time I went to Amsterdam was, you know, just visiting as a tourist with uh, my boyfriend at the time. And we went into a cafe and we ordered a... I think it was Northern Lights and Uh, uh, mm -hmm. man rolled it up and walked through the Bondle Park and looked at the parrots. Back in the day. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. (laughs) And then later on, I had the opportunity to work at Cannabis Cup when I was with High Times. Okay. Judge a Cannabis Cup in Amsterdam and have a whole week where I really experienced what that cannabis culture was like, kind of from the inside. Well, I mean, what clicked inside of you to say, you know what, I I enjoy this experience enough that I'm going to write about it and share it with other people? Because that's really your first entree was as a cannabis kind of culture writer, right? Yes, that's right. So I was uh, introduced to the High Times staff when I moved to New York and we all just became friends. I was friends with that whole gang uh, in the early 2000s. We just were hanging out and smoking weed together and Mm -hmm. they were all so fascinating to me because it was really countercultural at that time. They were covering an industry that was underground. We're talking early 80s, you said? The High Times gang, I met in uh, 2003 when I moved to New York. Okay, Mm -hmm. Okay, gotcha. And they were still, a lot of them were writing under pseudonyms. And, you Mm -hmm. know, when they were going to a grow to cover that, they would be, you know, blindfolded and put in the back of a car, not knowing where they were going. So they were like really renegades. Sure, yeah. And uh, just such an interesting bunch of great writers who really cared about the plant and were covering it. You know, it's really, really interesting, though. I I will give you a simultaneously at the same time. I I started becoming an advocate for cannabis in about 2000. One vocally and outwardly, because you know, I had my show and I was afraid of saying anything about it on my show, and was afraid of the reaction of a production company that I work with. And but in 2001, I became you know I well I basically got outed because I got stopped in an airport in Detroit illegally, and it made of course the front pages of every newspaper across the country, but they didn't cover it equally when the judge threw the case out completely. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, but they covered it. My dog gets busted with weed. I wasn't busted with weed. I had a pipe that was a brand new clean pipe that I had just purchased out here, maybe about six or seven blocks away from where we are right now. We're close to Melrose Avenue. And I had purchased this really unbelievable blown glass, kind of an egg pipe. It was like egg shaped. And I had it in my check luggage and, and, uh, no, not check. I didn't have a check. I had my carry-on luggage. Mm-hmm. I was carrying it through the airport. It literally still had a price tag on it. No flower in sight. No flower in sight. And uh, you know, but unbeknownst to me, Detroit had just passed a um, paraphernalia law. Right. Well, the, that was when Tommy Chong went to jail for his Correct. paraphernalia bus, Correct. right? Yeah. Right. So this is so I'm literally traveling through the airport. Didn't know that they had passed this paraphernalia law, but I and I, I had just flown in. It was connecting flight. I flew in. I took the wrong turn and ended up going out into the terminal, having to come back through TSA to go to my connector. Ugh. And when I'm going through, of course, this you know overzealous TSA agent looks at my bag and sees this thing, pulls it out, and goes, "What's this?" I said, "What's it look like? It's a glass egg." It looks like a pipe to me. 
said, well, you know, you could do that if you choose to. Mm -hmm. And next thing you know, she said, you got to stand over here. And the next thing you know, here comes the state police. Did she know who you were? She knew I wasn't. She was doing it just to be a jerk. Yeah. You know I mean, so, you know, um, now I had already been at public talking on my show and other things about the fact that cannabis was starting to help me with my recent discovery, the, the diagnosis of MS. And it just so happened that the police sergeant, who was a state police officer in Detroit, who came to the little TSA checkpoint, when he walked up to me, he the first words out of his mouth was, I'm sorry, Mr. Williams. Nice. I went, sorry? He goes, I'm really sorry. First off, are you, are you, were you here in Detroit? I said, no, I'm just fly flew from California. I'm going east. And he said, well, they shouldn't have stopped you. I said, well, I did exit out of the airport, out of the exit and turned right around and came back. And he noticed I landed 22 minutes ago. Mm -hmm. He said, oh, wow. He said, well, um, let me see what this is. And he looked at me and goes, are you kidding me? <laughs> I said, no, I'm not kidding you. Man. This thing is brand new, never been used, never been touched. And he said, no, you don't have anything on you, do you? And I said, do I have to tell you the truth or do I, do I mean, what are we doing here? He said, well, I'm going to take that. You have nothing on you. I said, no, sir. I, have, I, I can take that way. I didn't mm -hmm. answer. I said, you can take it that way. He said, well, okay, well then what I have to do is I've got to write you a summons. You know, unfortunately we did just pass a paraphernalia law. This is, eh, this is paraphernalia, but it's not paraphernalia because it's never been used. I, I have to write you a ticket. Right. And then you can go and catch a flight. So he wrote me a ticket. Uh, and then I went to catch my flight. This ticket got moved all the way through the entire court system to the point that, you know, a judge literally threw it out with prejudice because number one, I shouldn't have stopped uh, because I was not a, I was not in the, the state of Michigan. I was still in a airport. Right. Federal territory. Correct. And even though at that point in time, the fed had not issued any laws that say paraphernalia in this type, was illegal. So there was no reason for them to stop me, A. There's no reason for them to question whether or not I used it with cannabis or not. The judge threw it out completely. Now, of course, you know, all the newspapers and all the tabloids put me on the cover as, you know, violating the law. But when I was exonerated, you know, I got the little one paragraph on page number 62 down at the bottom in the right-hand corner. Uh, of I mean? course. Of course. Yeah. yeah. You know, they, they vilify you on the front page and they exonerate you in, in secret. Mm -hmm. right? So, uh, yeah, so that happened. And that was right. That was, I think, uh, 2001 and a half when what that a happened. Fascinating story to, for anyone now who's coming up now to hear that you got, I mean, that's why you got popped was for something that had never been used oh. that was in your life. I mean, it's crazy. I'll give you another one. Let me tell you another really yeah. crazy one. I, I literally got stopped again in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and this was one of these crazy things. This is, oh, 10 years ago. I was, um, oh, 11 years ago. I was, well, maybe 10 years ago. It was the second Christmas that I had spent down there because my wife is from Tennessee. And um, my father-in-law, as a gift for Christmas, basically bought me a pipe. He found a little pipe. He thought it was a cool gift. They didn't, none of them did any cannabis at all, but knew that I did, and I was very vocal about that. Allies. That time. Yeah, nice. I was very vocal about it at that time. I don't drink. I don't do alcohol at all. I only smoke cannabis and, and have since my diagnosis with MS. So he bought me this pipe and it was over the Christmas holidays. So I was literally using it at the house and, you know, and then we go to fly back. And at the time I lived in New York and I don't know how it even wound up in my carry on bag. Cause I, I think I must have, I was grabbing things at the last minute and threw it in this outer pocket of my bag. And I threw this pipe in my outer pocket of my bag. Now, 
tell you a very funny story. We, I'm going through TSA, and of course, this overzealous TSA girl knows it's me, sees this thing, went net. So, what's it look like? It's a pipe. You can't hand this. I said, uh, yes, I can. It's just the pipe is empty. There's nothing in it. And she was in it. She opened it up. And, you know, there was probably some black and char residue mm-hmm. in there that, of course, now we got to call the cops. Oh, my God. So here come the cops over in this. And it was really funny because the police officer comes over. He looks at it. He goes, hey, this is a marijuana pipe. I said, well, you know, I smoke other things out of it, too. Herbs and other things. Well, I ended up being taken downstairs taken into the little precinct office, getting to the precinct office. And the only way they could get anything out of it to test was this police officer pulls out a switchblade out yeah. of his pocket, psh, pops open, and he's scraping the metal of the inside of my pipe. Discharges, you know, probably, I don't know, yeah, a tenth of a gram of some char. Yeah. Drops it into a test kit. What? Absolutely. Drop that char into a test thing, testing kit, and it came back negative. <laughs> and why? Because I was only smoking Keef. And so as only smoking Keef, that Keef completely disintegrated, completely yeah. leaving no remnant residue whatsoever. If you smoking leaf, it will leave a residue that you can literally test over and over again for 10 years and it'll come up positive. Uh-huh. Keef came up negative. Now they were stuck with quandary. That's why I'm a busted. There's no pot. There's no marijuana. That's not a marijuana pipe. I can smoke tobacco out of that if I choose to. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to do? So now we're standing. I said, I got a flight in 10 minutes. Well, they went ahead and fined me. Oh. And not only did they find me, but they made me go up to an ATM and pull out the money to pay the fine. Oh, that's straight up extortion. <laughs> so I went up to the ATM, pulled out the money, paid the fine, handed it over to him, went and caught my flight, got back. Of course, I got my lawyers involved. Boom. And again, Goes to a judge, and the judge happened to be a judge whose family member was literally investigating using cannabis because they were suffering from cancer. And the judge threw it out with prejudice because he said, there's nothing here. I mean, I guess, there's no case that we have because you didn't find any residue. And it's a utensil that we had never verified used for cannabis, so you can't bust the guy. So, again, thrown out with prejudice second time around. Wow. Crazy. Crazy. Wow. Crazy. It's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. I mean, and, and, you know, and, and well, four years ago, I got stopped in um, Germany, uh, transiting Germany. I was headed to the Black Sea. and Where they have legal cannabis, and medical and, cannabis. Correct, but they were getting ready. Now, they hadn't legalized it yet. They were going to legalize it in June. Okay. I literally, now one of those dumb things, I, I never make these mistakes anymore, but, you know, um, it's really stupid. I had left the location where I had, oh, I'm telling you, probably a half a gram of Keef. And, you know, it's a very small little round container that I dropped in the outer pocket of my bag mm-hmm. and forgot to take it out. I went to fly. So, of course, we're going through. Broomhilda walks over, security sees it. <laughs> and, uh <laughs> She pulls it out, opens up the cap, goes, ooh, smell, ooh, this is so strong. I said, oh, oh my goodness, I, that, you need to stand here. Here comes Interpol. Oh, man. And just so happened that somebody literally was in the airport, um, actually uh, was videotaping this. And by the time while I was standing there, this was appearing on TMZ here in the States. 
Holy smokes. So somebody had literally downloaded a quick video, shot at CMZ, Martha Williams is in trouble for something. And uh, the truth is that the, the head of Interpol comes up to me and I, I had my, you know, um, card from California. From, uh, I had two cards, plus I had a, a recommendation from two doctors. Mm-hmm. Had it and I reached out to my manager and said, could you make sure you send us emails, emails to me? She emailed them to me. As soon as the Interpol person walked up, I said, look, I am a medical cannabis user in the United States. I didn't even know that I had this, but I have it. And the woman said, well, you know, she took took that, looked at my um, recommendation from my doctor, looked at my card, walked away. Ten minutes later, she comes back and she says, well, carrying my key, hands it back to me. Nice. And says, you know, we are going to pass a law here in Germany in three months that legalizes this. Um, you've not done this in the airport. I said, no, ma'am. She goes, please don't smoke. Well, how do you do this? I said, I eat it. Said, oh, well, then please don't smoke in the airport. But here you have this back. Here you have this back. Thank you very much. And she walked off on her way. Wow. That was really wild. It was like three months before they passed. It was really, I was, I was very fortunate that yeah. it didn't turn into something that would have been some crazy international incident. That's, but, yeah. You know, luckily it didn't. And, you know, we're here. But that's really what, you know, you take a look at that. That's a 12 year, 13 year period of time of the transition from how people react to cannabis moving forward. So going back to that question, so now you meet the writers where you meet the magazine High Times and decide to, what, you suggested, look, guys, I've been involved in this industry for a while. I'd love to do some stories about this. What? Well, at that time, I was actually working as a performer. I was acting and writing for okay. the theater, okay. and um, but I loved writing, and uh, I had become friends with the managing editor of High Times who knew that as an actor, I needed extra work. Mm-hmm. So she asked me if I wanted to do some proofreading and copy editing, and that's actually how I started writing about cannabis. Gotcha. She gave me the opportunity to start proofreading as a freelancer, and then I worked my way up to writing my first article. And my first article was a book review for High Times, oh. and then I started taking on smaller assignments for the digital for hightimes.com and then I worked Which my way just up to started, print. Right? Yep. Sure. Oh, mm-hmm. just launching. And um, yeah, and ultimately I worked my way up to print features and then they offered me a full-time editorial position, which I, of course, jumped at the chance to take. I, I have to ask the question because as a woman in the industry, you, you, you made some comments about it. how did the guys in the industry react to you when you first got involved? You know, for, for the first stretch when I was writing about cannabis, there was like kind of no question. We were all just doing the same thing. We were all working together to, you know, cover this like unfolding industry. Um, but then I think at a certain point when I became a lifestyle editor, there was a question about what that even meant. Like it was at that point, it had been all about like, um, activism and politics and cultivation. And the question that you were just covering something that was lifestyle related was, um, looked at a little askance by some of my male colleagues. And and from the standpoint of what, what did lifestyle mean? mean for me it meant anything that wasn't growing or um political so so anything culture of it culture yeah just cannabis culture and And you started interviewing celebs first and did you reach out to try to find celebrities that could help break the stereotype or yeah yeah? well the first one that i landed was actually margaret cho which was so margaret cho on my show i think when she first started out i did a i did a a one episode of the one show where i was picking the best comedian in the world and she was one of the comedians that we had on yeah. Uh, for that show, yeah. She's yeah. incredible. She's a legend. She's so brilliant and so funny. And she uh, was at the time really open about her cannabis use. She's gone back and forth between being sober and green and sober, which she was at the time. So we sure. smoked together. And uh, yeah, we drove down to Atlantic City to meet her. She was performing at the Borgata and we actually uh, photographed <laughs> her in bed while she was covered in buds. And it wow. was just a great interview. And she was really gracious and fun. 
Wow. So you got to smoke with her? Yeah. I did a bong rip with her and then had like a 45 minute sort of existential crisis. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's good. Yeah. Cause she was, I mean, she could smoke a lot and I was so nervous already that it sort of like amplified my anxiety. Sure. Took it over the edge. So she was the first and then, then, then you actually that, I guess that article appeared, Mm -hmm. got a good enough reaction that you started seeking out others to interview. Yeah, right? it was great. And I was really interested in, at that time, covering women uh, mm-hmm. in the entertainment industry, um, queer folks in the entertainment mm-hmm. industry, anyone who was sort of on the margins of what was, you know, coming up. And so I got to interview Aquafina, Okay. Uh, who at the time was just breaking as a... She's just breaking. Yeah. yeah Margaret Cho sure. had actually just said, like, she's the next one, you know, watch her. She's coming up. Uh, I uh, interviewed Peaches. Oh, wow. a gender bending, you know, pop mm-hmm. performer. Mm-hmm. Uh we spoke to Flatbush Zombies, um, all sorts of musical, you know, acts who were coming up at the time. It was just a really neat experience to be in New York writing for a legendary magazine like High Times and sure. getting interview celebs through that lens, through their right. cannabis use and how it affected their art. Mm-hmm. And I mean, generally, if you had to look back and say, well, was there a, a theme that kind of ran between every one of them when it comes to cannabis use and their art? And it was actually really individual Got for everyone. It. For some people, they use it for creativity. They use it when they go into the studio to make beats. And for other people, they use it to turn off. I sure. mean, I just spoke to David Crosby recently from my okay. podcast, and he was talking about how he's, you know, anything that you hear that he's written has been filtered through him being high. Right. And then wow. there are other people who are like, I absolutely can't create when I'm high. I just use it to sort of unwind at the end of the day. Yeah, and I kind of, you know, I've, I've been on a tip and, and talking about this quite a bit. I think that the majority of people don't understand that cannabis is one of those... <clears throat> plant-based medicines that has the ability, we know for a fact that it is, it literally helps to regulate, you know, the endocannabinoid system and puts the body in what is considered homeostasis. So I think that almost anybody who actually gravitates the cannabis over any other form of, you know, mind altering substance gravitates for a base root medical reason anyway, whether they want to admit it or not, whether they recognize it or not, whether it's from the fact that it makes you sleep better, makes you relax, takes off the anxiety. Those are all medical issues right. that we might not want to admit to and say that I have a problem, but that's something that, I don't know, lifts the, uh, or, or, or literally helps you kind of control whatever that symptom is that you're actually trying to control. Right. Like even if you're using it for creativity and just to unlock that part of your brain, that's mentally, that's mental health. And probably before you actually used it for creativity, you were suffering from anxiety block and, right. and, 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 or mental fog. Yeah. And maybe that's what's lifting that fog. I have never been diagnosed, uh, to be a medical cannabis user, but I know that I definitely use it medicinally when it helps me, it helps me really stay in the present. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the first time that I realized it was medicinal for me was when I was walking to work and I was feeling anxious and I'd taken a, a low dose mint mm-hmm. and it was like two and a half milligrams, but I just stopped and I was listening to the wind in a tree and just feeling calm for a second. And I was like, Oh, this is better than any kind of Xanax or anything that can be prescribed sure. for, I feel calm. I feel here. I feel prepared to go in and sort of embrace the day without any sort of worry about what's to come. It was great. Well, you know, you've been, you've been looking at the industry again from, you know, I think, you know, multiple lenses for now, close to 20 years. What's your take on the industry now? And especially in the last year, yeah. So when you take a look at, I mean, you know, the the value of a lot of the companies that started years ago have literally just been slashed into 
uh, oblivion because of overregulation, overtaxation. Um, and when I say overregulation, that means just some of the regulations that are really just absolutely stupid. Yeah. We, 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 and all we've done is, and I think in some ways, and I'll say this, a lot of people may disagree with me, but I think this has been done deliberately to throw this industry into you know, a system of havoc right now rather than allow a burgeoning industry to grow in America the way it should. I think we've done some of this to literally keep it at bay. And allow now, because of some of this overregulation, we've allowed the black market to literally now bounce back even stronger than it was before some of the deregulation and some rules, right? Right. So mm-hmm. in California, they've actually just raised taxes. and Which is absolutely asinine. It's madness. Right. And a lot of the smaller growers have been put completely out of business. And those who are still alive are really struggling to stay afloat. And a lot of the big businesses are coming in and taking advantage of that, which is, you know, what Dennis Perone, who you yes. know was one of the architects of Prop 215 and one of the spearheads of the cannabis legalization movement as a, you know, a gay man in San Francisco who wanted to provide medical cannabis for AIDS patients yes. during that AIDS crisis, he agitated against Prop 64 passing because he was really concerned that what has actually come to pass would happen. Correct. And that big business would take advantage of smaller growers and providers having a difficult time staying afloat in this era of real, yeah, problematic regulations, overtaxation, a permit, getting a permit to start is almost impossible. Right. So unless you have a lot of money. Unless you have a lot of unless money. Unless you have a lot of money. Unless you're, you know, really bankrolled by bigger companies who then are Trojan horsing some of the, you know, people who are able to get licenses who are smaller, the bigger companies are bankrolling them. And the whole thing it's is not just a mess. Issue, it's not just an issue here in California. I think right. we're starting to see this replicate itself in almost every one of the 34, 35 states and the District of Columbia that have some form of medical or recreational marijuana law in existence right now. Right. I mean, I think, and but I, I have, have I, I'm not this conspiracy theories theorist pers- person, but I, I will tell you, I think that some of this is being done deliberately to help thwart the business or the the development of a real structured business here that could thrive. It sure seems like it. I mean, when you look at how Colorado rolled it out and the fact that you know their money and their taxation really seems to be working for them, and the fact mm-hmm. that they during the vape crisis actually had very few people suffering from illnesses from illicit products. Because that's right, because they really tamped down the black market. Yeah, so, yes. and they did it through regulating and, and taxation that actually worked for Colorado residents and Colorado patients and Colorado businesses, whereas in California, the system, which I actually don't know that much about because it's so complicated, it's actually right. almost impossible to keep up with. It's impossible because every single municipality has their own rules, regulations, way that you need to package, way that you need to test. Exactly. You know, and so by the end of the day, you know, if you're one county over, you may have to go through, you know, 70% more hoops than the county two counties over. Exactly right. It's so hard to keep up with. And I cover cannabis and cannabis culture for a living. And I never pretend to actually be the the spokesperson for anything because it's really, truly impossible to know anything and keep up with it unless you're working at the Bureau of Cannabis Control. And even they don't know all the time. (laughs) But, you know, you got to look at at states like Colorado where, you know, I think from the elected official level, Though some may not admit it outly and openly, but mm-hmm. this is the baby boomer generation that grew up probably in high school and along the way, yep. consuming themselves and recognize that it's not, you know, the end all death drug that people try to claim it is. And so you've got buy-in by mm-hmm. the elected officials out here in California and other municipalities. 
you only have buy-in because people see dollar signs. You know, there's no, I mean, when you, when you really stop and have conversations with some people in some other states, you recognize that the passing of the hemp bill and the fact that now they can see a way for tax dollars. Mm -hmm. That's the only reason why they've stepped up to the plate and said, let's do this. That's they right. don't care about the patient. This is not taking a patient off the battlefield or, or taking the, the person you know, who is a, a, I still say a medical user, whether it be adult use or not, not really caring about that. They're just right. caring about what they can get out of that. And we're watching it collapse right, right now. I mean, we're seeing a lot of large companies that started with, you know, huge infusions of cash laying off 25% of their workforce because the payday that they thought was coming isn't happening. Right. So it's sort of interesting. It's, it seems to be writing itself somewhat. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm out here as much as we can be. I'm involved in deeply, you know, brand up of my own. And I'm also involved in trying to help formulators and people understand the plant. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what's really important. But I think one of the biggest issues that this industry's had is that for a very short period of time, it appeared as if the industry itself was going to try to regulate itself through co-opting with others. And right. And all of a sudden that seems to stop. And then, you know, the number of cannabis organizations that are really truly trying to educate the possible consumer is gone. Right. I mean, you know, uh, High Times was, you know, I, I would tell you, I, I remember I looked to High Times also when there was times to get, when I needed to get extra information or at least, at least needed to look at an article that would lead me in the right direction to Google four or five more times than I can get. Right. But it's not, that information is not there now. Well, they were the most trusted name in cannabis news, cannabis media, because of the staff that they had, the editorial staff who were doing the work and they, the leadership, which really allowed and supported those writers to do that work. And since the company has transitioned, they really laid off most of those people who are doing that reporting. And so now a lot of that reporting is coming from some mainstream outlets even right, right. Forbes or the Washington Post sure. or the New York Times or Rolling Stone which I now write for freelance a lot of these places are the are the actual places that are breaking the news in addition to places like Leafly but you know but unfortunately when you just say it, like Forbes you know and I love Forbes Forbes just uh, um, picked this podcast as one of the top 10 podcasts uh, on cannabis in the country today and I really 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 appreciate it but it didn't reverberate it doesn't reverberate with the masses right because the majority of people who are cannabis consumers are picking up Forbes they're not reading Forbes yeah yeah, yeah. and, and, and they want to know from high times sure right sure. high times needs to figure out or let's create new high times right yeah you know what I mean I mean honestly it's 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 really not high times it is high time sure and we literally get back to educating the masses and yes. there's so much information out there that needs needs to be shared. I've noticed that, you know, some of the podcasts that we do, especially with some of the doctors who are innovators in the space, yeah, you know, the reaction from the public has been overwhelmingly huge. I, I, I'm, I'm, and I'm, I should say I'm surprised, but I'm not surprised Yeah, because there's a voracious appetite for truth. Yes. And there are so many people in places, you know, that don't have access to any kind of legal cannabis, not Correct. only adult use or, you know, for consumers, Legally, but also uh, medically, right. but, you know, pl places like Arkansas or, right. you know, Texas that really right. don't have access to any of it. Right. And they yet need they, information from and, you. And they are still navigating the space through the black market. Right. We got to make sure people understand that though the state may not have a legal, you know, system to provide, it's still there in that state.
Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, then, you know, the pastors of the hemp bill, I mean, who are they kidding? Who are you joking when you, when you think that someone who's growing hemp in a state that has, doesn't have a legal marijuana program, isn't growing marijuana on the back 40 of the, <laughs> the 80 acre lot. Stop. You know, how stupid can you be? And, you know, and, and there still is in places around this country. And I, I, I hate the term when it's said this way, but Mexican weed that's coming in. Sure. Still wrapped in newspapers. Yeah. Come on. And the vape crisis was really, you know, given rise to because of the illicit market and because of, you know, those illicit THC carts that were making people sick. But, but the Fed then made sure that they gave the wrong impression trying to claim that, you know, the vape crisis was a tobacco crisis because they wanted to shut tobacco vaping down because of the tobacco industry who feels too much competition. So they literally decided to report it as if it was a vaping issue with e-cigarettes. Right. And we know guys and those who are listening right now, you need to understand that that was just a, 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 I, I think a bait and switch it was done deliberately so that states could pass legislation to try to try to stop the growth of the illicit or the growth of the, the vaping's tobacco products just because, just because. Right. And when we also know that, you know, to vaping tobacco and vaping nicotine has really helped and resulted in probably saving about 400,000 to a million lives already just because it's been used in some cases as a smoking cessation tool. Right. And it's the most effective medicine for a lot of people who can't, Correct. you know, find that relief from flour and they don't have the appetite for edibles and they don't right. have access to sublinguals. Well, now that's when you shift over and say vaping cannabis. But I'm just talking about for just a second here. I mean, I think the entire impression that was given initially when everybody was talking about this vaping crisis, they were attacking it from a tobacco standpoint. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until we finally figured out that it was, you know, bad chemicals being used as thickeners for THC that 99.9% of the people who have a vaping issue were from the illicit black market of THC. Right. But take a look at what's going on across the country. They've used that as an opportunity to round white bills and pass laws to ban flavored tobacco. Right. Do you think that's in an effort to get more money from the tobacco industry? I think that's an effort. That's an effort of uh, the, the, that's the fruition of the amount of money that's been given already by the tobacco industry. Right. You know, they don't want this, 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 uh, uh, competitor to the poison that they made. It's just like, you know, give it another year and we're going to start to see the Fed try to clamp down on hemp cigarettes. Yeah. Just because. Just because. Not, yeah. be not and not because they they find science that 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 says that hemp cigarettes are worse than tobacco, which we now know that there are science that proves that hemp cigarettes are, you know, I mean, the smoking a heavy a heavy biological product like that is not necessarily the best for your health. And I mean, we, we sure. have to admit that because you are drawing in to your lungs this heavy vapor, not vapor, heavy smoke. But I like it to for t for CBD. Absolutely. And, you know, we do know that there's a medicinal component to it, so it's okay. And if you're going to smoke, I don't know why, you know, from a doctor's standpoint, you wouldn't say, well, I think the hemp is going to be better for you than the tobacco because sure. we know that all the deleterious chemicals that are included to keep tobacco fresh inside of the cigarettes is what's really doing a lot of damage also. So, I think what we, what's happened is, is that there's just an excuse 
for the Fed to, again, jump in and do what they love to do, and that is to control your personal behavior. Right. And nobody really wants or nobody knows how to... Um, for instance, I was just thinking of Las Vegas and how, you know, they've um, they've got legal cannabis in Nevada, yes. but none of the casinos on the Strip will allow cannabis in the casinos. Where it's been smoked in the casino every single day. I've been to a couple of casinos and night. You can walk through <laughs> cloud after cloud after cloud, but go ahead. Absolutely. But it's not legal. You know, you right. could you could get a ticket or get in trouble if you do smoke cannabis in a casino. And that's because the casino owners have kept cannabis out of the casinos because they want their alcohol sales to stay the same. Correct. And they, want, they don't want the competition. Correct. And it's just, you know, really interesting in any... Uh, state with legal cannabis, watching the sort of alcohol and tobacco industries do battle with this legal cannabis market, when the answer is there's really, you know, there's less alcohol abuse, but people will still continue to enjoy alcohol. Correct. The alcohol industry doesn't need to be worried that that's going to be put out of business. I'm still going to enjoy a beautiful glass of wine. Sure. A biodynamic Pinot Noir along with my, you know, great craft cannabis. Absolutely. So. Yeah, but it's insane because we're in, and you know, I, it, I can't look ahead and tell when this is going to try to shake itself out a little bit. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I think that it's going to take, you know, the federal government descheduling and decriminalizing at the very least, if not regulating and taxing cannabis to even start to get the clinical trials and research that we need to have in order to really get everyone on board. Well, fortunately enough, there is a lot of research now that is actually being done. And, and, and though what will happen is, you know, any any change in or any kinds of, of revolutionary change in medicine is met with the most vehement resistance right. of any product, of anything in the world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're going to find over the next three to four years, I think, as more and more data gets published in medical peer-reviewed journals talking about the efficaciousness of cannabis you'll see a civil war happening on the planet, you know, like you do right now. Right. I mean, you know, the university is refusing to teach about the endocannabinoid system where this is something that was discovered using federal dollars to do the research. How stupid can you be? Right. But, you know, and, and turn around and, and not admit to the fact that these, in fact, are endocannabinoids that we found. This is not something that's been made up. This is true. Absolutely. So, you know, but again, we're living in a time when people don't want the truth. Well, yeah, they don't want to know about it. They don't want to know what any drug does to their system. They don't want to know much about anything, really, right right, right now in, in this time we're living in. People are comfortable knowing less because the truth about anything makes them uncomfortable, really. Absolutely. And that's what cannabis helps really reveal is the truth about not only the medicinal benefits, but as a consciousness sort of opener and elevator. Sure. It, help, it makes you confront some things. Absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about your, you know, I'm, I'm not going to run out of time, but we got a little bit left. Talk to me a little bit about your podcast and what started, what get you got you started in doing a podcast. Weed and Grub is a podcast that I do with Mike Glazer, who's a comedian. I like the name, by the way. Oh, <laughs> Two thanks. things that go well together. Weed and Grub. <laughs> yeah, we kind of figured those were the cornerstones for any great conversation. Sure. So sometimes it's about weed and sometimes it's about grub. And sometimes mm -hmm. we just enjoy Weed and Grub and we have conversations with people about anything under the sun. Um, Mike and I met when I was at High Times and he was making funny videos where he was like getting high and hanging out with a sloth or mm -hmm. smoking with Snoop. And mm -hmm. we just hit it off and we decided that we wanted to talk to each other all the time. Um, and we launched the podcast podcast, just sort of us, the format was really loose, you know, just chatting and hanging out. And then we started having guests on and we've grown from there. And 
just in the past year, we've grown so much and we've spoken to, you know, we had Jim Belushi and Tommy uh, Chong and like, I think I'm going to have Jim Belushi on here pretty soon uh, within a month or so. He's the most fun. He's such a good wow. interview. He's so much fun to talk to. And, you know, we've also had people who, um, don't necessarily consume cannabis, but they're allies or advocates for the movement. Mm -hmm. Um, we just had uh, drag queen, Trixie Mattel, who's the winner of RuPaul's oh, all stars. Wow. Yes. Trixie doesn't actually smoke, but you know, is just a fascinating person and wanted to talk about everything else. Sure. We hung out with David Crosby. Be, you know, we've talked a lot, a lot to a lot of interesting people. We've spoken to a lot of people in the industry as well, just about, you know, where they see cannabis going, where they're coming from, what their obstacles have been, what they've learned. I have learned so much. I mean, I, you know, High Times was really my education mm -hmm. and Weed and Grub has been my master's degree and like just learning about, you know, all of it from every perspective. It's, sure. it's really cool. So we get to travel around. We're going to South by Southwest uh, in March. Oh, wow. Okay, great. Present there sure. as a podcast. And uh, I'm excited to go to Austin and eat some barbecue. <laughs> okay, yeah. And uh, yeah, the, so it's, it's, it's about having a good time while sort of learning and being informative and, you know, being silly as well and just telling jokes. <laughs> Give out your name real quick. So make sure everybody listening here can tune into yours. It's Weed and Grub and it's available on all platforms at Weed and Grub on Instagram. All platforms. Mm -hmm. Got to go up and take a listen. <laughs> take a, is it video or audio? It's oh. audio. We have some fun videos that we've made. We did a great video with Magical Butter, actually. I know that Garen was yes, on the as podcast. Fact, as a matter of fact, uh, Magical Butter gave us the opportunity to be able to give away um, 30 units oh, over wow. the course of the next month and a half. Oh, man. If you don't have a Magical Butter machine, they're the best. Yeah, I, I use them to make all my edibles at home. Just so people understand, I'm going to give you a little information about how you can know. I'll make sure it's up on our podcast, how you can you know, enter our contest to see if you can win one. But this is a $175 piece of equipment. Yeah. It's great. And it's, you know, set it and forget it. Put your weed and your butter in there and walk away. Walk away. Yeah. Set it and forget it. I love it. Set it and forget it. <laughs> and we, so we went down to their uh, studios in Tampa and Mike and I got to do three days of a Thanksgiving feast where we infused everything from the sweet potatoes right up to the turkey. And this, you know, had this like kind of Mr. Bean, like adult swim, fun time video making. Uh, so we're doing it all. <laughs> that's great. That's yeah. so good. So tell me about your most memorable. Who would be your most memorable get so far for your podcast? Oh, man. Sitting down with David Crosby mm -hmm. was, you know, a life-changing interview because he is, you know, obviously he was at Woodstock. I mean, he's been a legend in the in the music industry. And as a weed smoker for 50 years, he got the Beatles high. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> but he's also really current because he's looking to the next generation. So he wanted to talk about Greta Thunberg and he wanted to talk about, uh, you know, the members of his band who are all these younger musicians who he's introducing to the world. And so he just felt like someone who, uh, you know, had an incredible legacy that he's handing off to the future. And that for me is, you know, all you can hope for, you know, to learn from someone who has the history and the institutional knowledge and is also excited about what you might have to offer as Absolutely. a person. It's very cool. Wow, that's really, that's really, really, really good. Yeah. What do you, what are your, your plans for tomorrow? Mm -hmm. Oh, <laughs> tomorrow I'm going to go for a hike with my dog in Malibu, mm -hmm. um, have a little tincture and mm -hmm. get up to a mountaintop. It's one of my favorite ways to clear my mind. I'm working on a couple of stories right now. Um, I write freelance for a bunch of different outlets now that I've left high times. Cannabis-related freelance? Yep, most for the most part. Okay. Yep, I write about cannabis culture. Um, I just wrote a piece about Buck Angel, who's got a uh, cannabis company here in Los Angeles. Buck is a trans man, trans uh, activist and icon, mm -hmm. who is also a cannabis advocate and entrepreneur. Really fascinating person. Um, are we going to have him on a podcast or are you just doing your Buck's writing? been a guest on the podcast okay, a couple of times. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And he's uh, just an entrepreneur and a, an amazing person who's fighting the good fight for legal weed in Hollywood and, and beyond in California for the gay community. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. 
And then, I mean, how about I say what's your plans for tomorrow, but what's your plans over the course of, let's say, the next year when it comes to cannabis? When it comes to cannabis, I... I mean, it's such a such a big world out there. I'm a chronicler of the industry. I'm not in the industry as a cannabis okay. entrepreneur. So okay. I'm excited to just keep covering it and talking to people about all of the things that are happening on the industry side and also the cultural side. You know, looking at Illinois, wanting to cover what's happening there, how there are. Yeah, a lot of people don't know what the last couple, couple of days ago, Illinois did a first day of sales. It was a nine million that they sold. Yeah. There was $9 million worth of They ran out. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. But that also shows, which which really goes back to the conversation we were having earlier, I don't quite get the conservative viewpoint about trying to stifle the use of cannabis when states like Illinois, yeah. the second you put it on the, on the uh, and make it available, boom. You know, you have that kind of they a rush. They ran out, yeah. Yeah, you run out. That yeah. means that this is something that the public is demanding. And demanding because, you know, you, you have so many people like, you know, I happen to have, you know, uh, just uh, I survived a year and a half ago a, a pretty severe hemorrhagic stroke. And and then I've been diagnosed with MS. So I'm, I am on, you know, a few medications. That I'm fortunate that I'm on cannabis mm-hmm. and CBD and I'm, uh, that has limited the number of medications that I'm on, but you know, as we get older, you know, the uh, good old Western way is to just load up people with as many pharmaceuticals as they can yeah. to make sure that we drive that price up. Sure. And you know, you, you got a person on the hook for a couple hundred dollars a month, every single month of their life until they pass away. And we've seen in other places around the world, how, as people become more geriatric and their use of cannabis goes up, their use of pharmaceuticals goes down. Especially sleep aids. Correct. Yeah. I mean, that's just the simplest for me. I use it to sleep. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. it's just, I think, really important to keep covering that and keep pushing pushing forth the, you know, the truth, which is that cannabis is a beneficial plant, however you choose to use it. And it's not for everyone. And if you're choosing not to use it, be an ally and an advocate for those who are. Absolutely. I mean, I don't understand, again, you, you nailed it. It's not for everyone. And no one in the cannabis industry is trying to convert everyone over to be a cannabis smoker. Yeah, I'm not trying There's- to push it on you. Just trying to make sure that it's available to those who want it and it's available in the most efficacious way. Exactly. Yeah. And to, with that end, that's one of the things that uh, Mike and I are working on right now is a book. Mm-hmm. We want to write a fun book with that, you know, with recipes and, and, and stories from the podcast and all that sort of stuff that sure. you know is continuing to educate and inform in a fun way. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, as a woman in the industry, and I did ask a little earlier about how did the guys react to you, Uh but as a woman in the industry, this has been an industry that, you know, uh, we really take a look back historically, this has been an industry for one demographic of America, and that's literally been, you know, um, young to middle-aged Caucasian males. Yeah. Um, Females, no. You know, only recently have we gotten more women involved in the industry, and most of them have come to the industry through, you know, a medical stance, most of them because of their support for a family member, a loved one, or someone that they're trying to help. Um, This has been an industry that, that, you know, I'd say the African-American community bore the brunt of the war uh, against drugs by being, you know, 80% of all people arrested for Marijuana since the beginning of arrest for marijuana have been African American males. Yep, and so uh, lightly represented in the industry right now. 
Um, and I'm not talking about those who have, have been arrested and then been released and are going to, but I'm just talking about from a business standpoint, African-American males are so lightly represented in the industry. Yeah. What do you think about women in the industry? And what would you say to a woman who is listening right now going, hmm, I like her. I want her pocket get involved. <laughs> well, uh, for anyone who's listening, please hit me up uh, at this is Mary Jane underscore on Instagram. I love chatting with and other Mary women. Mary Jane is a real name. It is my real name. <laughs> um, I love chatting with anyone who has questions about, uh, you know, getting into the industry, being a woman in the industry. And I look to resources like, uh, do you know Females to the Front? Amy Margolis is a cannabis lawyer in Oregon. And she, I know the name. She founded Females to the Front, which mm-hmm. is specifically for women who are uh, looking to become entrepreneurs and leaders in the cannabis industry. industry. So not just product makers and not just growers, but people who are going to actually be in positions of leadership. And um, they have a a series of um, rounds where they take companies uh, through funding and, you know, supporting them to actually get their, their companies online. So females to the front is a great place to look for, for women in the industry. Um, I, I look at, you know, what, was sort of happening as, as women were able to come out of the shadows because historically women were, you know, it was the, the use of cannabis was very stigmatized, especially if you were a parent, Right. you know, you had to fear maybe even losing custody of your children Correct. if you were openly a cannabis user. And now that is not so much the case, even though it still is stigmatized, but more and more women are able to say, I choose it instead of alcohol down Absolutely. the line. It makes me a better parent because I'm more connected when I consume cannabis, all that kind of stuff is happening, right. sure thing. which is amazing. So there are more women who are um, openly consuming uh, in the industry, unfortunately, what's happening is that that money, that Wall Street money is coming in and continuing to displace a lot of the people who would benefit from being leaders in cannabis, you know, minorities and women and and, and people who really have fought for freeing the plant. And so right. I think what we need to do is keep pushing that balance back and saying, you know, we these people all need a seat at the table, not one seat at the table, right. several seats at the table. Several seats. Yeah. Table. Good. Good. And, and now I'm running out of time here in a minute, but I saw there was a couple of the issues that really, really, you know, deep in your heart, mm-hmm. you know, like the idea of therapeutic psychedelics. Talk a little bit about that for a second, because that's really starting to grow nationally. Yeah. You know, there are centers opening up where people are being taken on journeys with varied psychedelics that have, in some cases, shown amazing efficacy yeah. for various illness. It's pretty incredible. It's it's uh, the next wave of, uh, you know, what's really be, being covered in in drug culture and countercultures, this rise of therapeutic psychedelics, which, you know, it's, to, been, it's also being, it's rising in the, in the, you know, I go, what do you call it? The, the authentic medical community also. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. For sure. Um, I know that, uh, Pamela Hadfield who runs hello MD is really interested in therapeutic psychedelics and she's starting to add that to her platform, hellomd.com, which is a great resource for cannabis. Um, there are publications like Double Blind that are coming uh, online now with all sorts of information about therapeutic psychedelics. I uh, loved the book A Really Good Day by Islet Waldman, who is a lawyer and mother of two who treated her own um, disorders using microdosing uh, LSD, wow. which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a great chronicle and a really sort of like thoughtful journal experience, not just like I ate a handful of mushrooms and went into the forest, but right. this was my experience as a working mother and parent using this to treat my mood disorders. So I'm fascinated by it and covering it. I've had my own therapeutic experiences with psilocybin, um, huge, huge proponent of it. I right. think it's very healing and, and really important and maybe the next wave of, of wellness. A lot of people are talking about that, especially when it comes to PTSD. 
Yeah, that yes. was my experience. I was diagnosed with PTSD and I've used mushrooms holistically uh, a couple of times a year to sort of reset. Reset. Yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the general conversation about it too. It's, a, it's an opportunity to reset, refocus. Yeah. 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 Right. Talk a little bit about your favorite snacks. Ooh, uh, okay. Uh, roast chicken. Mm -hmm. If you roast a chicken and just pull it out of the oven and stand over it, eating the crispy skin, that sure. is as close to heaven as I've ever, <laughs> as I've ever gotten. Mm -hmm. Um, a cold apple coming right out of the fridge with a, mm -hmm. a slice of sharp cheddar. But you got to keep an eye. I, I tell you, it's really funny. That was <laughs> the last couple of days. I had a couple of friends have been looking at some of the research that's going on. You know, that's something you have to worry about here in the United States. I mean, you know, you go to a grocery store and you get yourself a, a, a Granny Smith apple or a green, a good green apple. And you think you got something fresh. Mm -hmm. That apple could have been sitting in storage for over a year. Because it's been irradiated. Correct. Yeah. Radiated and then held in a climate controlled, low temperature environment so that they can stick it back out and it's covered in wax so that they it still shines brightly. Yeah. And you think you're eating something, but you're probably eating something that has lost 90% of its nutrients. Well, just like with cannabis, if you can grow your own. You know, right. so much of the cannabis that is coming out now is, you know, like especially the concentrates or, you know, all of the, all of the things that they're using in the concentrates can. Uh, I've been, I've been a really, you know, I've been all over this whole concentrate thing about the fact that, again, if there was an area that we need to have some regulation, that's the area we need to have regulation. Right. And there's nothing wrong with regulation. If the, if the industry got together and policed itself, we could fix this problem. But mm -hmm. we don't want to get together and do that because we're too worried about, you know, it's that old saying the bucket crap syndrome, but we're too worried about somebody else getting us one step ahead of your game. Right. And the truth is that we need to clean that up. How do you think we're going to do it? What's your call to action? You know, I, I, I have uh, in the last, you know, I, I'm starting to venture out and, and meet with, and this podcast has helped quite a bit, meet with people from all over the country and just by having the discussion about us working together will foster a person that I'm talking to to say if they can get someone else in their area of expertise. I'm talking to doctors, talking to lawyers, talking to growers, talking to people <clears throat> to make them understand that this should not be a battle between us. It should be a battle that we are fighting together. Right. <clears throat> and the more and more I get to do it, I'm, I'm, I'm keynote speaking at, at several different events around the country and around the world on the topic also, trying to lift that bar. I think one of the biggest issues with our, with the, the business right now is education. Yeah. You know, we've spent so much time trying to do B2B education and try to figure out how, again, you can make that dollar mm -hmm. and not answering and fulfilling the needs of the potential marketplace. You know, there, and you know, the, what we thought and what I think a lot of people in this industry believe would happen when you open up recreational use and or adult use in, in states, whether we want to admit it or not, everybody thinks that, oh, good, you'll get that, you know, 18 to 24, the same demographic that television thinks is the most important demographic in America. Right. When the truth of the matter is it's 55 and older that has the most disposable income. And in women America. are the spenders of the household. So pay attention. <laughs> pay Correct. attention to us. But we're not paying attention. We're not paying attention. So we're not actually giving the information to that demographic that it needs to help make a good decision if it's going to go out and, and purchase or get involved in cannabis culture. And that's part of what I'm doing, I'm trying to do with this podcast is to make sure people get the information that they need, get factual information, not the garbage, not the fake news, but the real news. And, you know, I, I, I said, I, I just, it was so funny. The other night 
I was doing an interview about a different project that I'm working on, which is a documentary about the rise of anti-Semitism around the world. And, you know, at the end of the interview, the interviewing reporter thought they were going to throw me a monkey wrench and go, well, now I'm going to understand you're involved in cannabis. It's like, yeah, and? Uh-huh. And we had a good, solid conversation. And I, I remember I said, you know, I am involved. In, you know, and why shouldn't I be? Because I'm trying to educate people about something that even our federal government has been involved in. Yeah. And when I looked at when I said that, she gave me this really puzzled look. And I said, you do know that the federal government owns the patent on CBD and various components of, of cannabis. And she went, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, it's time for us to start educating. And I'm saying here, you can look it up. You know, the U.S. government owns the patent on CBD. You can look it up yourself today. Go Google patent on CBD and it'll tell you in the abstract what our federal government has spent close to $100 million trying to refute but prove, and that's the efficaciousness of this plant. Yeah. So how can they out of the other side of their mouth say that it has no medical benefit when it filed for a patent claiming all the medical benefits it has? Right. But, you know, it's like that's like two brain cells fighting with each other in, inside of one brain. But people need to understand that this isn't something that a bunch of potheads are are discussing. This is something that our government has done research on for over 40 years. When it comes to the hypocrisy of that, I think that someone like the former U.S. Speaker of the House, John Boehner, serving Hypocrisy on, beyond belief. On the board of a cannabis company. Correct. Right? So I, uh, we were talking about that on our podcast and saying how um, hypocritical that how is. How dare he? How dare he? We did have a listener reach out from Texas and say, well, what is helpful about that is that I can point to him and say to my very conservative relatives, look, this is someone who is the former speaker of the house who is serving on the board of a cannabis company who believes right. in cannabis right. as obviously profitable, but is also saying that he believes in the efficacy of it as a healing plant. Well, you know so I mean? that's I, the one good thing. That's the silver lining about that hypocritic, hip, hypocritical stance. I, I get to say the same thing because a lot of people don't know that serving on the board of my company or as an, as an investor in my company is the former head of pharma worldwide Whoa. congressman billy tozen wow. and also for serving on my board and as an investor in my company is the former head of the cia what jim woolsey whoa who is you know considered one of the most conservative guys in america today these are guys who understand and understood by their associations with me and understanding what i've done in the last 20 years and i'm not out here you know robbing kicking down doors and stealing from people i am a cannabis user because of the way it helps me medically and these are guys who are friends of mine who say i can look at a person and understand why you do that i get it yeah i get it now we need to make more of them get it but but at the same time when i say hypocrisy and so I said, well, why don't you call them hypocrites? I don't because they will speak out and they have spoken out with me now for now almost 10 years. Right. So uh, there's nothing hypocritical about what they're doing. People can change their minds. You Correct. can change your mind. That's not hypocritical. Correct. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mary Jane, thank you so much for being here with us. I'm telling you, I make sure everybody goes up on Weed and Grub. Please come be a guest. I will definitely be a guest. Awesome. Absolutely. Invite me over. I'm coming. Okay? Great. For sure. It'll be a lot of fun. Can't wait. Right. And I want to make sure you make sure you tune in to our next, our next Let's Be Blunt with Montel. All right now, be well. Mm -hmm.